0: Hello friends, my name is Brenna and I'm Danny. And, and this, this is Law Ghost, Ghost Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener's discretion is advised. Welcome back you guys, episode 4. Last episode we talked about Tracy Thurman, and wow, I was not prepared for that. It was a really powerful story. Now this case also deals with domestic violence as well, so I want to provide a trigger warning for today's episode. This case is extremely graphic, so if you're sensitive in any way or think you may be triggered by graphic details of crime scene, dismemberment, or talk of domestic violence, please proceed with caution.
1: I promise you guys, not all our episodes will have trigger warnings. This was a fluke. I told Britta what I was doing, and she's yeah. like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm doing a similar thing." And after kind of doing the research and both of our stories being pretty intense, we just felt like the trigger warning was necessary, but it won't always be there. I promise. Yeah.
0: We don't give much background on the cases that we individually research, but this one, it does seem like there are a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. I even mentioned in, in the last episode, if y'all heard it. But. Yeah,
1: I introduced Brenna to one of the podcasts I mentioned last time, and I was like, do not <laughs> listen to this episode before my case. It's very true to like her responses and what we kind of talk about, because we don't look into the cases. And if we do know the cases well, we will look into different perspectives of how that story is told.
0: Exactly. And I tried very, very hard. I was very tempted, but I did not. (laughs) I did not peek at your story, I promise. (laughs) But let's jump right into things today. I'm going to tell you about the case nicknamed the Linden Lake Skull. Now, if you're anything like me and have seen every streaming episode of Forensic Files twice, then this case will sound familiar. Girl, that's how I put myself to sleep. <laughs> me too! It's so
1: soothing. <laughs> oh, we weird love day. it. And it's so quick, and they're just so concise. Yes, it's perfect.
0: Yes. And for those who don't binge-watch the show, well, get ready. On August 7th, 1996, two young boys, TJ and Tim, went fishing in London Lake, located in Hamilton, Ohio, when they accidentally caught appeared to be a human skull missing the lower jaw. The boys, scared and uncertain about the authenticity of the skull, leave it on the bank and return home. According to TJ Jijan in his interview for Forensic Files episode, Skin Her Teeth, he stated they returned to the lake the next day and found that the skull was right where they left it. The boys contacted police who confirmed that the skull was in fact a human skull. After an extensive search of the lake and nearby area, the police could not locate any other remains and transported the skull to the local coroner. There, the coroner found that the skull could not have been in the lake long, since there was a small amount of soft tissue attached. Immediately, police were faced with several unanswered questions. Who did the skull belong to? How did this person pass? Was it from a grave robber? Did animals ravage a body and that's how the skull ended up in the lake? And where is the rest of the body?
1: I do feel like if I was caught in this situation, I would end up on the police's radar. Because, like, if I always think about, like, if I see a trash bag on the side of the road or something, I'm like, oh, my God, what is that? Or, like, if I found this, I would want to know, like, step by step with the cases. And they'd probably be like, why is this I'd be too involved, yeah. yeah, I'd call every day for (laughs) that. Yeah, like, what is happening?
0: Yes. Exactly. The local coroner sent the skull to College of Mount St. Joseph's outside of Cincinnati to help in the identification of the remains. One of the first things that forensic anthropologist Dr. Elizabeth Murray noticed was that there was a large indentation located on the top of the skull, which would suggest that someone had used a meat cleaver or a machete on the skull. Mm. There were also several other cuts and scratches around the skull, and puncture wounds in the eye socket that suggested someone was attempting to remove the flesh and the eyes. Even more alarming, Murray also noticed what appeared to be needle nose plier marks around what would be the teeth, although they were also missing, and this suggested that someone forcibly pulled out each tooth one by one.
1: I'm always so fascinated when like forensic anthropologists or people that do like blood spatter analysis, how they can come up from like beginning to end of what happened with yes. just such a little information.
0: Exactly.
1: It's very, very, very detail oriented.
0: Yeah. Now I think it's safe to say that this person was murdered or there's at least some sort of foul play involved, right? But Murray decides to send this gold to a few of her colleagues for a second opinion, not only because she was completely shocked that something like this occurred, but she also thought that the police may not believe her findings based on just the sheer brutality of what she was suggesting. I mean, she had never seen anything like this. Now, outside of this evidence, Murray was able to confidently say that the skull belonged to a Caucasian female under 35 years of age, but that would be the only information police would have to try and identify the unknown woman. Police began working through the missing persons report nearby and found that four people had been reported missing recently. Out of these four individuals, one was Tina Mott. Tina was 21 years old with an 18-month-old son and had been reporting missing by her boyfriend's mother two months before the skull was found in the lake. Her boyfriend, Timothy Bradford, stated that Tina had gone to visit with her family in New York, which is where she was from, and left their son in Ohio. Shortly afterwards, Tim's mother, Elizabeth Bradford, had been reaching out to her relatives in New York, but was worried when she did not receive a response because she knew that Tina would never leave her son. Police quickly realized that Tina never made it to New York Elizabeth also told police that her son, Tim, had a bad temper and she was afraid of him.
1: So the boyfriend's mother the one reporting Tina yes. missing?
0: Yes. No, I know there's a lot of T names and there's two Elizabeths. So Elizabeth Bradford is the boyfriend Timothy Bradford's mother. And yes. Yeah, so since Tina wasn't originally from Ohio, she's from New York. She doesn't have any relatives there. And Tim's mother is the one that reported her missing.
1: Okay, so that's obviously a red flag right there that it's not her boyfriend. It's yes. the boyfriend's mom. And then it she was pretty young. It seems like 21. Mm-hmm. So she had him around like 1920 just depending on when her birthday falls. Yes. Were they living with her, do you know? Were they living separately?
0: Yeah, so Tina and Tim lived together with their son.
1: Okay, and then the mom did not live with them. She was just concerned Correct. because she didn't hear back. Okay. Yes, exactly.
0: Police had found that Tim rented a storage locker nearby shortly after Tina's disappearance, and they were able to get a warrant to search that unit. There, they found a set of 19 kitchen knives, one containing human protein on the handle, and a book titled Democ, Death Point Striking by Earl Montag which explains to readers how to strike vital acupuncture and neurological shutdown points. Basically, it was a DIY book on how to kill someone using this particular martial art technique. Police also found a notebook containing satanic rituals, and Tim's mother, Elizabeth, confirmed that Tim was a quote-unquote devil worshiper.
1: I don't ever understand why people get storage lockers and store these things. Yes. Like if that is ever found, you know, you're going to be caught. I don't, I never understand. Yeah, I I agree.
0: Police also obtained video footage of Tim using Tina's bank card at an ATM, pulling cash out of her sole account shortly after her disappearance. They also noted that Tim was known to abuse drugs and Tina's coworkers stated that Tina confided in them that she was afraid of Tim when he was on drugs. Armed with this evidence, police obtained a search warrant to search the couple's home, and when they sprayed luminol around the upstairs apartment, they found an area of the carpet and a couple of spots in the bathroom that appeared to be human blood. And if you're a new true crime fan and aren't familiar with luminol, luminol is a liquid chemical that when sprayed on a surface will react with iron in the blood and will produce a glowing light in complete darkness. Luminol will still reveal blood evidence, even if the area has been thoroughly cleaned with detergent or bleach.
1: Good call on adding that, because I think Luminol, and I know exactly what you're talking about, but not everybody knows.
0: Exactly. Police now have a lot of suspicions that the skull belonged to Tina Mott. However, they look back to forensic anthropologist Elizabeth Murray in assistance for DNA proof. Now, the police did have a couple of teeth from the skull, even though the suspect believed they had pulled all of the teeth out. Turns out that two of the wisdom teeth were embedded under the gums, and even though most of the skull had been defleshed, those two wisdom teeth had not been removed. Elizabeth began to extract the tooth pulp from inside one of the wisdom teeth. However, the sample was too badly degraded for DNA testing, mostly likely due to bacteria and time spent underwater in the lake. So Elizabeth tried another technique to try and obtain DNA from the skull itself. Elizabeth used a sterile drill to drill six holes into the thickest part of the skull to see if the middle core would be untouched by outside elements. The only thing with this technique is that it can only be tested for mitochondrial DNA, which is only able to be compared to direct maternal bloodlines as mitochondrial DNA is only passed down from the mother's side.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't even know getting down to that microscopic level of DNA that only one side of your parents is existing Yeah. In. That's insane. Yeah.
0: Amazingly, this technique proved successful as they were able to compare the mitochondrial DNA from the skull sample to Tina's son, Johnny's mitochondrial DNA from his blood. This proved that the Linden Lake skull was that of Tina Mott's. Now, the police can confidently say that Tina Mott was deceased. They bring Tim in again for questioning. After several hours, Tim finally tells police he was responsible for Tina's murder, and he used hunting techniques he used from his childhood to dismember and skin Tina after murdering her.
1: Okay, so I was waiting for our first dismembering case to tell this story. So, you're welcome. <laughs> I was in the shower and I was like singing in the shower or whatever. And I was like thinking about different things. And my sister was like, well, what do you think about while you're in there? And I was like, well, I kind of think about like, okay, this is a mark. This is a mark. This is a mark.
0: What marks you have on your body? <laughs> yes.
1: To she be She was identified. like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, if something happened to me and I were to be chopped up, there are different parts of pretty much every portion of my limb that you'd be able to identify my body with and she was like this is what you think about in the shower i mean sometimes you have
0: to i i was even telling my husband the other day like okay, if, if my face is unrecognizable, but they find just a head after researching this case, I was like, my ears are different. And I even like got a flash. I was like, look at my, the difference in my ears. Like just <laughs> in case, you know? I mean, obviously in this case, it's just a skull, right? So mm-hmm. they couldn't really, and they, all they had is a skull, so, but yeah, no, I think about
1: that stuff, too. Yeah, definitely. Crime junkies have a different way of thinking. My sister was seriously concerned, but I was like, no, like, if you listen to as many episodes as I do, you just start to kind of process things a little differently. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Now, Tim went into great detail explaining that on the night of the murder, Tina and Tim were playing Monopoly at home when an argument got out of control and Tim struck Tina in the face. Tina went to the bathroom to clean her bloody nose, and Tim claims he began cleaning his fishing gear he used from earlier in the day. He then tells police that Tina came out of the bathroom to continue the argument, and because he had a fish fillet knife in his hand during a scuffle, he slit Tina's throat.
1: So he's (laughs) claiming... Yes, claiming. (laughs) ...that you just had, like, a hand gesture and it accidentally slit her throat? Or, like, is he saying... I slit her throat because I had the knife in my hand because I got that angry.
0: Correct. Yeah, he had the fish fillet knife in his hand. They were having a scuffle because of the argument, and he just swung, and the knife was in his hand, and he basically accidentally slit her throat.
1: Okay. I don't know how you accidentally do that. I agree. (laughs) Okay. From his
0: signed confession to police, Tim recalls, and I quote, We were arguing. She came at me. I swung at her with the hand the knife was in. I cut her. She went down. I really don't know what happened. I ran. I came back. She was dead. I was on speed. I got some knives, some with black handles and some with white handles. I also got a meat cleaver. Then I started taking her apart, end quote.
1: So now he's on drugs.
0: <laughs> yes. So remember earlier he um, occasionally used drugs and that's when Tina was afraid of him. Mm-hmm. But yes, he admitted that he was on speed. And I don't, I don't know too much about drug use, but... Um I don't really know what speed does to your brain. I'm assuming that it's an upper, right?
1: So it's Yeah, that's what I was just about more to ask. So than I was a like what are the symptoms <laughs> of speed? Like how does that work? Yeah.
0: But honestly, I will, I wasn't planning on going too much into the whole speed thing because mm-hmm. I I felt like it was a bit of a cop out anyways.
1: I mean, yeah, I feel like in the whole first paragraph it was just kind of like oh whatever I had my fishing gear and then I accidentally slid her throat now you're apparently on drugs I don't I don't know how we're
0: all over exactly. the place scrambling now.
1: exactly
0: and Danny will you continue some quotes from Tim's confession for me
1: yeah, Tim continues saying, quote, After I cut Tina's head off, I used the meat cleaver and tried to split the head in half before I got the hacksaw out. I used the hacksaw to cut up her body, end quote. He also tells Polite, quote, I flushed some of her down the toilet. I put the rest in a garbage bag. After I cut up Tina and put her in garbage bags, I placed the bags in a field near the treatment plant. I threw the skull in the lake and I cut the jaw off of it, end quote. Okay, we <laughs> I'm over you giving me these disturbing (laughs) quotes to read. I'm sorry. That was all over the place. Yes. Full disclosure, audience, I had to take a break. (laughs) When I first read it, I was like, oh my god, that escalated very quickly. Very detailed. Um,
0: And I found it interesting that he switches back and forth between saying Tina and then just the Like, I cut the jaw off of it after I cut Tina's head off. So he switches back and forth and it's... yeah. I don't know I don't know what his state of mind was in I I was jokingly saying like is he also on speed during his confession because he just which you know we want to know what exactly happened that's what police want to hear but mm-hmm. he's very very detailed in what he did to her
1: yeah I feel like he's trying to disassociate Tina from Like, he mentions, okay, I cut Tina's head off, but whenever he goes into detail of, like, what he's doing with the body, he then says, the body. Yeah. I cut the jaw. Like, instead of, it's Tina's jaw, Tina's body. Like, try to disassociate that that was happening to her. Exactly.
0: And lastly, a quote I would like to share from the confession states, quote, I know that Tina was dead when I pulled her teeth because when Tina's teeth were pulled, I had already cut off her head. I used a pair of pliers to pull her teeth. Nobody helped me do any of it. I did everything myself. I love Tina. End quote. Tim also takes police to the site where he stated he dumped the remaining parts of Tina just less than a mile from their home. However, when police recover her bones, 14 months after the murder, animals had already gotten to them and only about half of her was ever found. Every piece of bone that police recovered had been cut by either a
1: knife or hacksaw. I find it really interesting that he really felt it necessary to say, I loved Tina. I'm not sure what kind of love you're displaying right now, but sir, this is not anywhere near that.
0: Exactly. And he'll say it again. I'll I'll, uh, bring that back up. But yeah, he's adamant that he loved Tina, but clearly the scenario of what he did to her did not match that. Yeah, I would totally agree. Now, I think it's safe to say that if the two boys hadn't accidentally caught Tina's skull that day fishing, I think it's very likely that this case would never have been solved. Amen. The community was in absolute shock after hearing the news and details of the murder, but even more shocking was what Tim would be sentenced to after accepting a plea bargain. Tim never provided a real reason for the murder, but he stated that he loved Tina and he was sorry. He pled guilty to misuse of credit cards, theft, abuse of a corpse and voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 12 to 25 years on september 24th of
1: 1997 okay when you first started saying misuse of a credit card i thought that was gonna be it and no. i was gonna throw the mic <laughs> <laughs>
0: i mean but also did you catch he was only voluntary manslaughter voluntary what manslaughter is that? You
1: cut up a body dude
0: Mm-hmm. again he goes back to you know i was on speed i didn't know what happened And um, he did say in previous interviews that he had left and then came back and had no idea what had happened. He just found her dead in the bathtub. But it's very clear that you knew what was there in front of you was wrong because you decided to literally
1: cut her up. Well, and I think it's funny he says that he doesn't remember because you're literally quoted saying every step that you did you knew when you cut yeah he said he didn't remember
0: at first and then I guess it came back to him but yeah it's very detailed it's like you do remember a lot of what you did
1: yeah like that's not just like little details that you're like oh yeah I forgot this like you were giving details of every body part you were cutting up when you pulled out her teeth like you're exactly
0: and the picture of him holding her head he states that as he was pulling her teeth he had already cut the head off so he was probably sitting on the toilet because there was a lot there was blood found in the in the bathroom around the toilet. He was probably holding her head in his hands while sitting on the toilet pulling each tooth out. And that just Yeah. I don't see how that would equate to voluntary manslaughter.
1: Yeah, that there's no connection for me at all.
0: But it gets better.
1: After parole hearing for his early release
0: was denied in 2014. Timothy Allen Bradford will be released from prison in December of 2023. He will be 52 years old at the time of his release. In a letter that Bradford provided to the producers for the Forensic Files episode, which was released in September 2001, he writes, quote, I have committed an atrocity in the eyes of God and a man, and for that I accept full responsibility. End quote. He also writes, quote, My actions belie my true feelings for Tina. I truly loved her with every fiber of my being. I'm court. sorry.
1: This is really like the amount that he's trying to express his love for her. It's honestly making me more angry. <laughs> yes, I, I'm there with you. Honestly, it's like I ugh, I don't understand. Like I'd rather you not say anything at all than say that. <laughs> yeah, or just like
0: uh, no comment. I apologize. Something yeah. like that. I agreed. Now, Prisley, I don't think that even his full sentence of 25 years is long enough for the murder of Tina Mott, but what do you think? He claims that he accidentally slit her throat during an argument, and because he was on speed when he returned to the apartment and found her dead in the bathtub, he had no recollection of it at first, but honestly, I don't think that's a good enough excuse. Yes, he did end up working with the police and gave a full confession that led to a portion of her remains being recovered but I'm confused as to why the prosecutor would agree to a lesser charge, which Bradford requested. I understand that the prosecutor was desperate to give the family the ability for a proper burial, but the fact that only about half of her remains were recovered just kind of feels like a slap in the face. It's just very unfortunate, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think my last case in this one, they really missed it on the sentencing side. Like, I just don't feel like either one was nearly appropriate at all. Absolutely. The only thing I can think of, I know you said they were kind of young, so I don't know if that played in his favor with like accidentally slitting her throat, being a young person on drugs, if that's the only thing that could make sense in my mind of yeah. why that happened.
0: I mean, I guess, but this was like, what, 90s? Um, and if you recall... Um, Daniel Laplante still received life in prison. You know, granted yeah. he was going to be eligible for parole after forty-five years, but and he killed three people. But still, I feel like a life for a life. You yeah. know, most of the time it is a life sentence, and I understand that you want to give the family members closure and everything. But he will only be fifty-two in yeah, twenty twenty-three
1: one thing to kill someone but it's another thing to kill them and then cut up their body and throw it away and then still say that i loved you exactly yeah
0: i was also trying to find out where tina's son johnny is at now because i was curious to see if he would want a relationship with his father after his release although i couldn't find anything specifically about him i am curious to see what information will be available closer to or after tim's release because i'm sure his release will resurge a lot of media attention So, if Lagos is still around, and I certainly hope so, I will keep you all updated.
1: Yes, girl.
0: (laughs) I also do want to add, even though it's not directly associated with this case, but that the home that the murder took place in did catch on fire in April of 2020. We'll include a photograph of the home on Instagram and Facebook, but it's a two-story home and the fire occurred on the second floor patio. If you recall earlier from the episode... The upstairs apartment is where Tina Mott and Timothy Bradford lived. In an interview for Journal News, a Hamilton fire investigator, Trevor Snyder, stated that there was one person in the home, but they were able to get out safely with no injuries. The home was badly damaged, but there was no evidence of foul play. Now if you're familiar with this case, then you also may be familiar with the Rupert case that occurred 20 years prior in the same neighborhood just right across the street from one another. In an effort to not have this episode be over an hour long, I want to go into greater detail on that case in my next episode, so stay tuned. I will say that the Rupert case is not directly tied to Tina's case, other than how close the two houses are located, and a brutal murder occurred in both homes, but
1: with the Rupert case, add another 10 murders. Oh my gosh. So, we have homework for you Lagos fans don't go research this case until you hear our story. <laughs> hear it from us first.
0: <laughs> and of course, you know, I, I research a lot, and so I will mix and match a lot of different sites. So even if you do sneak around and, you know, look up the case... I'm sure I'll still have some, some new information that you didn't see.
1: But just remember, me and Brenna have a lot more fun when we don't know what the other one's saying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. But that concludes today's episode. Let us know your thoughts on this case. We would love to hear your feedback. Do you think 25 years is enough justice for Tina's Mott's life? Leave us a comment or a review. You can review the source material for today's episode in the description box below. If you would like to watch the Forensic Files episode, Skin of Her Teeth, you can find the episode streaming on Netflix or watch the episode through YouTube, which is also linked below. If you have a case suggestion for us, reach out to us through our website, LogoStories.net. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Logostories. We will be back with a new episode in a couple weeks. Until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound Nightmare for a theme music.